Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, the spookiest medical history podcast this side of the mortal veil. Today is a special Halloween episode uh, where I talk like I'm Frankenstein, because I'm sick, and I have a, I have a sicky voice. Um, but instead of having a normal episode where we talk about a medical phenomena, we're going to talk about two spooky stories from medical history. But before we dive into the ghouliest episode of the year, how have you been, my dear co-host? I've been alright. Um, I've been kind of busy with school. Um, I'm also doing this new program. It's like a mentorship program where students help other students that have like some sort of neurodivergence, like people with autism, people with ADHD, um, and they help them like organize, like structure their studies yeah. and kind of help them keep track of what they're doing yeah. in school, um, you know, if they're struggling with that kind of yeah. stuff. Is it also like part being like part coordinator as well? Because like a lot of the time, at least from when I, from when I went to uni, uh, people who, uh, I knew people who like took advantage of such a mentorship program. And their mentors sometimes like help them contact like various student yeah. organizations or like school per people mm-hmm. to like ask for more time on tests and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a bit like that. Like I'm supposed to know what services are available, um, you know, if they need like special accommodations or if they need to find like a quiet study space yeah. or, you know, get help in the library. Like I'm supposed to know where to direct them. But also it's primarily me going with them over like their assignments and having to helping them like structure their time um and like prioritize what they need to do and Mm. and sort of giving them like check-ins um Mm. about it which i think is 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 fun and i'm i haven't started yet um so we just had our intermeeting and i'm supposed to start soon and i'm really excited to meet to meet my first uh student (laughs) Your first mentee, yeah, mentee. is that what it's called? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you do you have do you have like one person, or do, or are you gonna get like a class? No, a no, cohort? no, it's definitely not a class. It's I mean, you get to choose how many uh, to mentor at a time, mm. and it really depends on like how much work you can take, like mm. your own schedule. Um, I feel like I have a pretty busy schedule, so I think I'm gonna start with one. Yeah, and then you know if it goes well, you can always ask for more. Yeah, but I think it's gonna be good. Like I've had mentors in the past. And they really helped me. So I, I hope I hope it's going to be good. <laughs> um, how have you been? Well, we, it hasn't been super long since we recorded. Mm. It's been 10 days. I have spent eight of those 10 days sick. <laughs> um, the reason why my voice is the way it is, it's not because I'm doing a spooky Frankenstein voice um, because it's Halloween. Uh, it's because... Because I'm sick. Mm. Um, I'm on, I'm on the mend. I'm getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was definitely worse a few days ago. Mm. And... I'm good now. I have brain fog and I have a lot of phlegm in my throat. So if you hear me just like, Bleh, it's it's not like added noises we've added from like Halloween sound packs. Mm-hmm. It's just me being the way I've been for a whole week. Yeah. I think much, also- much to your detriment. <laughs> I mean, it's fine because I was sick first and then you got sick. And we yeah. had this like short, like narrow period of sickness overlap. But mostly yeah. like I was sick first, you took care of me. And then you got sick. Now I'm taking yeah, care of you. You can take care of me. Um, so I, I, you know, at least we didn't get sick at the same time. Thank That's God for that. Silver lining. I think I think our immune systems have merged in, in or like become compatible in a good mm-hmm. way since we started the podcast, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that we're we can always take, we take care turns. of each other. <laughs> we take turns with the sickness. Um, you can have this. Mom, mom said it's my turn with the disease. <laughs> um, 
But before we go into the, the spookiness of the episode, we also want to thank our patrons for supporting this episode, and we specifically want to thank Syl Monaghan. Uh, I think that's an Irish name. Mm, which... It sounds it sounds really, really Irish. Uh, Irish. Uh, thank you, Syl, for supporting our podcast. We hope you enjoy it, and uh, we hope you enjoy these spooky, scary stories about mysterious serial killers. Yes. Hope you get a lot of candy in your bag. <laughs> Do people go trick-or-treating? Still so. might be like a full adult. And like, but you can only go trick-or-treating. Trick-or-treating. I have a feeling I know who Sil is. And uh-huh. I think they, they also watch our streams. Nice. Uh, and I get the feeling from from what, from what our interactions <laughs> that Sil would definitely go trick-or-treating. You should go trick-or-treating. I used to go. I went until I was like old as fuck. <laughs> I used to love trick-or-treating. Like, the, the best I was the older kid on the block <laughs> with my little bag. There's always a child activity that you do, and you do it one last time when you're a bit too old for it to do it. Was trick-or-treating like that activity for you? Yeah, and I think it's because I grew up, you know, in Eastern Europe, you don't really trick-or-treat. And then I moved to the United States when I was like 14, Mm. and I started trick-or-treating at like 15, and Mm. I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. I have to do I have to milk this activity (laughs) until I can't milk it anymore. You didn't get enough opportunities, you have to do it now. So I I think I did it until I was like 18. That's good though. Yeah. Cause like, but like, I think nobody really does it in the United States anymore. I would what? go, yeah, like I would go with my friend, also eighteen years old, and we were like the only ones on the street. Damn. These damn kids. These are damn American kids. These yeah. um, what's after Gen Z? Do Gen Z or because Gen Is Z is like getting too old. Alpha. These alpha. alphas don't go out and trick or treat anymore. I think it's alpha. I'm not sure. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Jinx. All right. Anyway, let's get into the episode. Alright, so it's October, which is Halloween month, um, which is arguably the best holiday of the year. Agreed. At least for spooky bitches like me. Uh, <laughs> I love Halloween. I'm a spooky bitch. <laughs> you don't think I'm a spooky bitch? I don't think you're, you're spooky, but you're not like a spooky bitch. Like that combination doesn't, I don't think that hits for you. You're a spooky snail. Oh, so a what? A spooky snail. A spooky bug. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but fair enough. Um, anyway, I love Halloween, I love scary stories, and for this episode I want to to tell a story of a serial killer. We're doing a little bit of uh, true crime this episode, mm-hmm. which we haven't done before, but I hope, I hope you like it. I won't be talking very much about science, but I will be talking about history, oh. uh, specifically about a historical figure, a physician turned serial killer. The doctor I'm talking about today has been dubbed Dr. Death, as well as the Angel of Death and the Good Doctor. But his real name was Harold Frederick Shipman. Also, the Good Doctor is a I know. Of a, it's, I, I, saw, what? I know. I don't know about that one. No, no, no. Fred Shipman was born on the 14th of January in 1946 on the Bestwood Estate, which is a council estate in Nottingham. Mm-hmm. Robin Hood is right next door. <laughs> um, he came from a working class family with his father working as a lorry driver. He also was the first in his family to go to university. So, you know, very, very working class. Same as <laughs> Same as you. He had an unusual childhood. So he was a very lonely child. And there was, um, he kind of kept himself like at a distance from the other kids. And this distance between himself and his peers was reinforced by his mother, Vera. One of their neighbors said the following, Vera was friendly enough. 
but she really did see her family as superior to the rest of us. So she she had a bit of a of a superiority complex. Mm-hmm. She thought, you know, her family was the shit. Mm-hmm. In addition to this, she also visibly favored Fred. She thought that he was the most promising of all his siblings. He had two, Clive and Pauline. And she thought that he had the most potential for a bright future. So she made a lot of effort to distinguish him from the other kids. She, uh, you know, the other kids would wear like casual clothes. Fred always had a little suit and a tie. Four years old going to kindergarten. With suit, a tie. Suit yeah, and tie. Yeah. So, Suitcase. I mean, Here's my toys. Yeah, <laughs> like a briefcase. Um, she was also pretty controlling, so she decided who he could play with, when. Like, she, she had a big influence on his life. Mm-hmm. In his early school days, Fred was pretty clever. He got good grades, but he became a pretty mediocre student when he reached high school. As far as his social life goes, he was pretty involved in sports extracurriculars. Uh, he played football and he ran track, but he maintained a feeling of superiority over his peers, and he did not try to build friendships with other people in school. Unfortunately, when he was 17, his mother Vera developed lung cancer. He was very close to his mother, and her illness hit him very hard. Every day after school, he would rush home to sit by her bedside and keep her company, which she also really appreciated. As you know, cancer can be quite painful, and usually it's due to tumors that press on tissues or nerves, but it can also be due to cancer treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, also in the 60s, pumps to self-administer painkillers did not exist. So the mom relied on the family physician to come and, you know, give her morphine so that she wouldn't feel pain. Yeah. And this is something that had a strong impact on Fred. Like he would see the, he would see her, he would see his mom suffer and like be in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And he would see the physician come and like take all that pain away. Mm-hmm. That, that left a long lasting impact on him. I can see that. I feel like a lot of kids, when they when they interact with doctors as kids, they really see them as sort of like superheroes almost. Mm-hmm. She eventually died in 1963, and he felt a tremendous sense of loss, as he felt that she was the only one who understood him and made him feel special. His mother's death and the impact the family physician had in her last moments also made him decide to pursue medicine. So, you know, big, big moment for him. Like, it basically changed the course of his life. Yeah. Two years after she died, he was family admitted to the Leeds University Medical School, which he actually had to apply a few times to get into because he kept failing his um, entrance exams. Um, so that's also kind of interesting because he was like, you know, he was very convinced that he was superior to his peers mm. and he was better than everybody else, but also like his like he grades. Was, he was, was alright. He was like pretty mediocre. His yeah. grades weren't great. Like there was a what he thought about himself and like the reality mm. were not really the same. He also maintained his distance from his peers and teachers, who, when asked later what he was like, said the following. It was as if he tolerated us. If someone told a joke, he would smile patiently, but Fred never wanted to join in. It seems funny, because later I heard he'd been a football player, so you'd have thought he'd have been more of a team player. A former teacher said about him, I don't think he even had a girlfriend. In fact, he took his older sister to school dances. They made a strange couple. But then, he was a bit strange. A pretentious lad. A pretentious lad? A pretentious lad. <laughs> uh, like, this is in Leeds, too, which I also think is, like, an, I think that's northern mm-hmm. England. Mm-hmm. So, like, hearing hearing some guy just be like, ah, he's a strange couple. <laughs> he may a stra- he's a strange and awkward lad. 
Yeah, that's so my attempt at a northern British accent. I was thinking about trying to do a British accent for this, but I, I'm not good at accents, so I, it wouldn't be funny. I would just butcher all of it. Um, but anyway, so these are things that people said about him. But the thing is, like, most people didn't even remember him. He was really, he was a loner. He kept to himself. He didn't really talk to people. Like, most people didn't even notice him. Yeah. Um, but he still played football. And that's where his personality kind of changed. Like, when he was on the field, he became very aggressive and very angry and extremely dedicated to winning. So, uh, you know, very kind of, kind of a change in character. Mm. At 19, he met a girl named Primrose, who was 16 at the time, and married her when she was 17 and five months pregnant. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> I don't know. This what the... earned the leech fest seal of yikes. <laughs> I don't know what the laws were back in the 70s, but it seems a little... Yeah, I mean... I mean, he was also 19, so it's not a huge age difference, yeah. but it's definitely a little weird. It's a little weird. By 1974, when he was 28 years old, he was a father of two and working at a medical practice in the Workshire town of Todd Morden. Uh, these names of English towns are going to be the death of me. <laughs> Everything that ends with sheer is... Just, just fuck my shit up. <laughs> We're going to find, like, Worcestershire sauce town. I know, I know exactly. Worcestershire like, upon time. <laughs> sometimes I struggle with like pronunciations of just like American English words add British to that I like British town names yeah. no fucking way no fucking way <laughs> I remember one time um, when I had had one too many cups of wine and playing GeoGuessr mm -hmm. and I saw too many cups of wine. and I saw yeah, one too many cups of wine in Game of Thrones for some reason um, and I was I was playing GeoGuessr and I just like scrolled over all the place names of the UK mm -hmm. and laughing my ass off ever mm -hmm. all, like because some of them they don't sound real. They, they sound don't like sound someone, like an like yeah, an AI yeah. made them yeah, up yeah, yeah. to find like the silliest goofy fantasy names. Mm -hmm. It's true. Like Pudmington. <laughs> Who the fuck is Pud Pudmington? <laughs> Somebody's gonna message us and be like, well, "I actually live in." I'm Pudmington. a proud resident of Pudmington. It's a <laughs> thousand year old history. Yes. Okay. Anyway, let me. If I feel like if we if we banter a lot, <laughs> it's like it's gonna ruin the atmosphere yeah. a little bit, which I love banter, but. It, I we need, need to, the, the spooky energy. The spooky energy. We're not doing very well. The spooky energy. The this horror year. music has already faded out like yeah. ten minutes ago. Okay, so he he was twenty eight years old. He was working at this medical practice in in the Yorkshire 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 town of Todmorden. Okay, so he's kind of uh, he start he's starting a job in new new freshly examined medical physician or medical doctor yeah. physician. New, new year, new me. New year, new me. Um, and he really takes that to heart, New Year and Me, because at this point he undergoes like almost a metamorphosis. So at this point he wasn't the loner that nobody remembered anymore. Suddenly he was an outgoing, respected member of the community. Uh, you know, his whole image changes. Mm -hmm. Despite this, despite uh, the, the change in him, or rather the change that he presented to the community, the staff in the medical offices where he worked still saw parts of him that he didn't show everyone else. He was often rude and made others feel stupid, which was a word he often used to describe people he didn't like. He was also confrontational and combative and liked to belittle and embarrass people, and was also a control freak in the workplace, always trying to get his way even with more experienced doctors in the practice. Got the superiority complex, though. The, yeah, very much a superiori superiority complex, but also um, he was mostly like that to people who worked under him. Mm. So he was very good at distinguishing 
between people that he needed or wanted mm. wanted to impress and people that he didn't need to sort of hide his true nature yeah. from. Like uh, subordinates. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So he was mostly rude with subordinates and then, you know, he put on a whole another face for for the bosses and yeah. for the community. Um, so his senior co-workers actually really appreciated him. He was freshly out of medical school and they enjoyed his fresh outlook and he's like... Uh, you know, up-to-date knowledge. When he suddenly started having blackouts, which he justified as epilepsy, his senior partners were devastated. However, soon enough, the truth came out when the practice receptionist Marjorie Walker uncovered some suspicious entries in the druggist's narcotics ledger. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It seemed that Shipman had been prescribing large and frequent amounts of pethidine, which is a morphine-like analgesic, in the names of several patients, as well as in the name of the practice. This was not very uncommon, like drugs are sometimes kept on hand in slightly higher amounts, uh, just in case of like emergencies and immediate treatments, but the amounts that he was prescribing were excessive. Yeah. Pephidine, like I said, is an analgesic, and at the time it was thought that it had no addictive properties, which is something that is still debated to this day. Following the discovery of the ledger, the practice started investigating the suspicious drug prescriptions and found that many of the patients that the prescriptions were written to didn't require or need or like even get the drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, a staff meeting was called and one of the seniors at the practice, Dr. John Dacre, Dacre? <laughs> Dacre. Um, confronted Shipman about it, about the false prescriptions and also about the possibility that he was using the drugs yeah. for himself. Calling a staff meeting, hey, junkie. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we got, like, drugs missing. You taking them? At first, he begged for a second chance. But when he was denied, he became enraged and stormed out, hurling a medical bag to the ground and threatening to resign. (laughs) Which, uh, to everyone else, was shocking and out of character for him. Uh, Because they knew him as, like, this, um, you know, controlled... Uh, yeah, you know, very like calculated, calculated uh, reasonable mm. person. Um, <laughs> the hurling of the medical bag to the floor is amazing. It's very amazing, but it's also really funny that like it's flipping like flipping a table. Like, if you don't give me a second chance, I'll resign. But like, they're gonna fire you. Bro. They're gonna fire like, you. Like, like, you can't. That's you can't. Not... Like, the, you can't resign. You'll like. <laughs> very much like you can't fire me. me. I quit. quit. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, you know, he stormed out. I think his wife also came to the. Um, to the practice and threatened that... Uh, she also threw a medical bag to the floor? She threatened that... No, she said that if you, that you... You can't fire him, you'll have to force him out. And then they did. <laughs> <laughs> he ended up fired from the practice and was sent to a rehab center in 1975. So they... Yeah. No, they just... They fired him. <laughs> I, I, what are you going to do? Stab me? Says man who stabbed. <laughs> anyway... Despite his track record, not even two years later, he was back in business as a general practitioner at the Dunnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, in the north of England. Today, he probably would never have been allowed to handle like drug prescriptions ever again, yeah. and probably would get his license revoked. Yeah. But um, he, you know, played the role of the caring, hardworking doctor to those that he wanted to impress, like yeah. his future employers, and um, you know, they bought it. Yeah. He, they, they hired him. And he sort of entered the same dynamic again. Dynamic again, like he was very 
uh, deferential. He played this like role that he played really well to his superiors, and then he he was rude and offensive to his um, subordinates. Mm. He seemed to have learned his lesson from his previous experience, and there were no more blackouts and no indication of drug abuse, which is what his employers were mostly looking out for. Mm. Um, you know, so he he knew to not do that anymore. But I mean, it's, I mean, it is pretty reasonable to like if you're gonna hire yeah, a doctor gonna, who like steals drugs, you're gonna keep an extra eye on the, yeah. on the drug locker. But he didn't. They didn't really keep a very good eye on the drug locker. They mostly looked at him for like signs of drug abuse on his part um well, but they didn't that's also that, yeah come on that's yeah. stupid uh anyway he he, he doesn't look high things good are, enough good enough so you know he was up to no good things continued happening now being a doctor means that unfortunately you will have patients who die like that's kind of part of the job mm-hmm. but the local undertaker alan macy Notice that a lot of people died at the hands of Shipman, more than the patients of any other doctor in the area. Um, he also noticed a very strange pattern, specifically that the people who died seemed to die without being ill. They were almost always fully clothed and dying while in the middle of doing something. Uh, there was never an indication that they were sick. They just yeah. like died clothed while having tea, like in a chair. Yeah. Or watching like a show on the TV, yeah. uh, which was really strange. They weren't like in bed in their PJs, yeah. like being sick. Yeah, or like in a hospital gown. Or in or a hospital, like exactly. Yeah, they just like. Eh. <laughs> That's so rude. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, anyway, Alan Macy decided to talk to Shipman about it and ask if there was any cause for concern. To which the doctor told him to not worry about it and even showed him the certificate book that he issued death certificates in. The undertaker dropped his case. But his daughter and funeral director, Debbie Brambroff, uh, was not so easily convinced. She decided to contact a different doctor named Dr. Booth. A detail here is that British law requires that a doctor from an unrelated practice examines and countersigns cremation forms issued by the original doctor for a fee. And this practice is called um, cash for ash. <laughs> no, it's not. Is it, it is. called cash for it's ash? It's called cash for ash. Or at least they used to be called that. <laughs> I know it's a little, it's a little silly. Like that, like people died. People died. <laughs> like I'm, like I'm, I make, I make a joke here, and I feel kind of bad about it. They're doctors. Yeah. At the time, just mm-hmm. like cash crash. I don't know if it's the formal name, but anyway, that's what I found. Um, Bramboff, the funeral director, saw Doctor Booth and told her about the, you know, her misgivings about shipment, specifically that she thought it was very strange that so many patients died. Um, and that most of them were female, living on their own. Uh, you know, like I said, like found dead, sitting in a chair, seemingly healthy. Mm-hmm. Booth contacted the police and they investigated Shipman's records. But what they found was that the patient's treatments and causes of death matched perfectly. But what they didn't know was that Shipman had rewritten patient records after he killed them. The investigation was later brought into question because the police did not check his previous criminal records and didn't inquire with the General Medical Council, which, if they had, they'd have found his past record of forgery and drug use, which would have led them to conduct a more thorough investigation. Mm. But Shipman's crimes did not stop there, so there would be many opportunities (laughs) for an investigation to take place. Yeah. On June 24, 1998, an 81-year-old woman by the name of Kathleen Grundy died unexpectedly, shocking everyone around her. 
She was one of those people who, even in old age, have a lot of energy and are very active in the community. Mm. She was a wealthy ex-mayor to the city and was very involved in the local charities and was a loved member of the community. Her absence was noted when she failed to appear at the Age Concern Club, which was uh, surprising to everyone because she was known for being punctual and reliable. Her friend went to her house to check up on her and found her lying on her sofa, fully clothed and dead. Dr. Shipman, who was the last to see her on the pretext of collecting blood samples for a study on aging, was called immediately. Why would you call the doctor? Yeah, like, it's, it's a little strange. But at the same time... I just think it's, like, a really... Like, why, why was that his, his excuse? Hi, I'm here to collect blood samples. I'm studying aging. You're old. Give me your blood. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, they... You know, they probably agreed beforehand. I guess. But it's just weird that he would go to her house for that. Like, yeah. Because it's not. Like, you call someone to a clinic for that. You call somebody Have to a, a clinic. To take like, the blood exactly. You, you, you know, it needs to be sterile. Like, all your equipment is at the clinic. It's a bit strange, but I think they just did things differently in the 70s. Yeah. I I, so. More house calls. More like house that. calls. Yeah, I generally think it's really strange. Like, the whole concept of house calls. A doctor has come to my house. <laughs> I actually remember when I was a very small child. I actually remember... I also uh, remember having house calls. Uh, I, I didn't have house calls myself, but I remember like uh, old people in my neighborhood having, having mm. house calls. So I think I think it actually was... A, and I think it's a more, a more common practice with older people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, they're less, they they're, they're less capable they of like, go to going the hospital. to a clinic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I remember my, my grandparents are doctors, and they told me many stories of having to trudge through the uh the soviet winter to get to you know to like apartments at the yeah. outskirts of the city and visit like older people yeah. in their houses um so anyway she kathleen uh grundy so they found her dead and they realized that dr shipman was the last person to see her to collect blood samples for study on aging mm-hmm. Um, He was called immediately. He pronounced her dead and told her daughter, Angela Woodruff, that a post-mortem examination was unnecessary because he had seen her very recently before she passed away. (laughs) That makes no sense. That's not an answer. When she got home, Angela Woodruff also got a call from solicitors claiming to have her mother's will and claiming that she had left £386,000 to Dr. Shipman. (laughs) Well, come on. I know. Come on now. I know, I know. Now you're being um, silly. Angela Woodruff was a solicitor herself and had been handling her mom's affairs and even had the original document that had been lodged 10 years ago. So for her, this was very surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, she knew her mother and she knew that she was a meticulous and tidy person. And it was really strange for her to see this document because it was also typed badly. It was written badly. The signature looked strange. It looked kind of different from mm-hmm. her mom's signature. Um, so for her, you know, knowing her mom, something wasn't adding up. Yeah, the vibes are off. The vibes are off. So she kind of started suspecting that there was something weird with this doctor. She started suspecting that maybe this doctor, um, you know, murdered her mm-hmm. for profit. She immediately went to the local police who agreed to investigate the matter. To get proof of Grundy's murder, a post-mortem was required, which in itself required an exhumation order from the coroner. Her grave was exhumed, and her tissue and hair samples were sent to different labs for analysis. In the meantime, police raided the shipment's home and offices in order to ensure that no evidence would be destroyed or concealed. An important item was found, and that was the typewriter 
that he used to type Grundy's will and other fraudulent documents. So I didn't know this, but I guess you can connect. Like if you see a document that was typed on a typewriter, you can tell the type of typewriter that they used. I had no idea about yeah. this, but... Uh, so it, it, it all depends on... Um, there, there are small details <clears throat> like in the typeface. <clears throat> so, uh, and even even if you have like 10 identical typewriters, <clears throat> just the fact that the, that the mechanics and sort of the, the keys and everything will bend slightly over, <clears throat> over time means that documents from documents that are typed from one machine will look the same mm -hmm. with very very small differences mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that will be like if an r and a t how, like how what's how how big is the difference between the letters how, mm -hmm. how much do the letters deviate like this mm -hmm. um so you can do pretty like good analysis mm -hmm. on that you can match you can match them which i think is really cool for us that never... no one does anymore because no one uses a typewriter yeah yeah anyway apparently you can you can match them so they found this typewriter and they realized that it's the same one mm. that was used to write these documents in addition to that, Shipman's home was dirty, was full of old medical records, mysterious jewelry, uh, as I, well. I, I like the first part was dirty. It was dirty. Cops under dirty. Well, that means I, I it's mean, guilty. well, it was more that you know, at, at the time for a doctor. Okay, I don't it, want. It, it I don't does, want to it say. Like fit his profile of no, like a neat, upstanding citizen. Exactly, like, it doesn't really is, fit his profile. Yeah. Like I, I felt a bit strange about sort of bringing this detail because. People have different personalities and, you know, a doctor is probably very busy and like maybe doesn't have time to clean their house. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're a murderer. Yeah. But they, the, the way that I, um, the context for this is that his house was bordering on unsanitary, which was mm. strange for a doctor. Yeah. So it was dirty, full of old medical records, mysterious jewelry, as well as filthy clothes and old newspapers. Um, so I guess the filthy clothes part is also maybe a bit strange here. Like, whose clothes are those? Yeah. Don't know. The lab results then came in, and they indicated that Grundy died of a morphine overdose. This was very surprising to the investigators, uh, because morphine is one of the few drugs that can save the body tissue for centuries. So you'd think that as a doctor, Shipman would know that, and he would be a bit more clever about um, about that, and like choose a, uh, choose a drug that... It's uh, not, like not, not so easily traced to him mm. since he has like access to that. The investigator actually gave insulin as an example of a more clever drug uh, because the body produces insulin and then, you know, it's harder to find that as a... As a, its own sort of like, contamination or like poisoning as a, thing. Yeah, as a poison. Mm. Um, they, don't, they don't do that anymore, right? Do Cop, cops don't like have press conferences being like, well, listen, if I did a, yeah. if I did a serial killing, this it, is it, stupid. I would have done this yeah. instead. Like they don't, I don't think they do that anymore. <laughs> I think now they're just like, we, we, we got it. Mm -hmm. We were stupid. Things were different in the 70s. <laughs> but anyway, I thought, I thought that was an interesting example. Yeah. That's really cool. So it's not really known whether Shipman was arrogant and he just didn't think that he would get caught. Um, whether he thought that as a doctor he was invincible and he, like his word wouldn't be called into question or whether he was just like not very intelligent. During his trial, Shipman also tried to make the case that Grundy was a drug user, <laughs> but it was also pretty hard to believe that this conservative old lady, mm -hmm. uh, 81 years old, would like be a morphine junkie. Yeah. Um, and his credibility crumbled like whenever he would bring like, this yeah. kind of justification or argument. Yeah. Everyone was just like, you're, you're talking you're, so, you're so you're full of shit. You're not making sense, yeah. In any case, the detective at this point started wondering whether Grundy's death was like a one-off mm -hmm. or whether Shipman had something more to hide. Yeah. So the investigation was immediately expanded. And they started looking into him a bit, a bit more yeah. thoroughly. Yeah. 
Because if you find one dead body, at, at that point you start looking for more. You you want to like look into this person a yeah. bit more carefully. So one thing that Shipman would do after the death of a patient, which kind of got in the way of the investigation, is uh, he would try to convince their family to have them cremated. Um, and also stressed that no further investigation was necessary into their death, which is probably like the only smart thing that he did. Yeah. So this complicated the investigation because there were few samples to test. There were some people who were buried, so they did investigate those samples, but most people were cremated. Um, the police also investigated Shipman's medical notes and found that on the surface, they seemed to make sense. The patients saw him for symptoms that he later cited as leading to their death. Mm -hmm. It would later come out that Shipman actually made alterations to the patient's records immediately after they died. Uh, he considered himself a computer expert, despite not being very familiar with how it worked. Oh. He was very arrogant, uh, and being as arrogant as callous as he was, he did not actually realize that the, computer, uh, the computer's hard drive recorded the alterations that he made to the patient's notes down to the second. So some poli some police officer just like, control Z? <laughs> ah, there we see it, there we see it. Exactly, so they found that he actually made alterations right after they died. Yeah, because it recorded, I guess this is, what, in the 70s? Mm -hmm. Well, a bit later, like... Early 80s? Uh, like middle 80s. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess at that point, like, a lot of people don't know computers super well. No. So like... He... And it's, no, and this was actually like, in the late 90s. Oh, late 90s yeah. even? Yeah. Oh, damn, so late? Yeah, yeah. Man, this guy did this for a, lot, a while. He did it for case. a while, yeah. Um, well, in that case, that, well, in that case that's on him. Mm -hmm. It's like, the, every document says then, like, at the side of, like, Windows XP, like, altered latest at this date. Like, come on. I think I don't remember. This guy is I don't not... remember how it was. I think... Anyway, anyway, so something that I read about him is like, so initially he wasn't uh, really into the whole computers idea. Mm. He was kind of like a technophobe. He was against the computer idea. Because, I mean, he, oh, seems, no. he seemed a bit like the, the kind of person, like at least the impression that mm. I got of him is that he, uh, he seems like the kind of person who is a bit conservative, like doesn't want to change his ways. Mm. But then he started using the computer and then he was like, no, actually, I'm, I'm a computer whiz. I know it so well. I'm amazing at it. I'm, so I'm a computer, computer expert. expert. I'm so good. Doesn't know. They're that never gonna figure it out. They're never gonna gonna, gonna get me. Anyway, they they were able to see like when he would make these alterations. Um, and here's a taped interview between him and the Greater Manchester Police. Police officer says, "I'll just remind you of the date of this lady's death, 11th May 98. After three o'clock that afternoon, you have endorsed the computer with the date of 1st October 97, which is 10 months prior. Chest pains, Doctor Shipman." I have no recollection of me putting that on the machine. Officer, it's your passcode, it's your name. Shipman, it doesn't alter the fact that I can't remember doing it. Officer, you attended the house at 3 o'clock. That's when you murdered this lady. You went back to the surgery and immediately started altering this lady's medical records. You tell me why you needed to do that. Shipman, no answer. His refusal to cooperate with the police and denial of crimes continued with Shipman refusing to talk and sitting with his eyes closed when the police tried to show him photos of the victims, yawning and refusing to answer questions and look at the evidence. <laughs> his wife also was loyal to him throughout all this and also maintained that he was innocent. His trial, so at this point, you know, they, they got him. <laughs> they like, know it's him. At this point, they, uh, they have evidence on him, so he was called to trial. 
So his trial began on October 5th, 1999. He was charged with the murders of 15 people, all of whom died between 1995 and 1998, as well as the forgery of the will of Kathleen Grundy. Grundy's case was examined first, and it took a week to go through. Um, then they examined the cases of the other people he murdered, and those took a lot faster because they started recognizing some patterns and mm. how he worked, and then it was a lot easier to, to like, realize what had happened yeah. and like, go through all the evidence. An example of something that he would do was the ambulance telephone scam, where he would discover a dead patient and pretend to call an ambulance, but never actually do it. <laughs> you know, so like uh, the shipment would kill a person, tell the family that yeah. the person is dead, uh, I'm, calling then, an ambulance. I'm calling an ambulance and then never do. And the, the ambulance never comes. So, he, you know, he would like pretend that he's concerned about it and that somebody else is going to examine it and then just like fuck it and yeah. goes home. And then the person, of course, is too, is like dealing with the fact that their loved family member died and doesn't even realize. Yeah. So, you know, very much of it was kind of preying on the vulnerability of mm. the family, like their grief, the fact that they were very yeah vulnerable in that moment. Yeah. And people trust doctors, too. Like people, yeah, exactly. Like, That's also a big thing, that he was a very respected member of the community. Yeah. Many witnesses also told of the callous attitude Shipman had towards the victims and their family. He would imply that their wives or sisters or, or mothers had died, but not tell them clearly. And just, like, play with them while they were trying to get a clear answer. Um, so that he would, like, almost try to make them guess, you know? It, if if somebody if somebody had died, they would call them and like give very vague answers, and the other person would try to be like, "So what are you telling me? Like, did she yeah. die?" And he would be like, "Maybe yes, maybe no," <laughs> and just like keep at that for a while. That's that that is maybe the cruelest thing. Yeah. That could like if 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 goddamn like if a doctor right. ever did it to me, like I'm like I'm going there. I'm going to your house and taking all your possessions and I'm calling the cops on you. Like yeah. there's no way you're a real person if you do that. <laughs> like But what do you did my mom that what do you think? <laughs> you know, like that kind of yeah. shit. We um, did we did all we could. What does that mean? <laughs> is she is she in the hospital? There's no reason for her to she, go to the hospital right now. <laughs> she has moved she has moved to another department. Yeah. What does that mean? Exactly. Um, so some speculate that he enjoyed having them trying to guess mm. and get desperate in the process. Like a power play. I think. Yeah, like yeah. a power play. Witnesses also spoke of him defaming the dead. Uh, one victim, Ivy Lomas, was a frequent visitor. So she was the kind of person who needed to go to the doctor a lot. Mm -hmm. um, she was, <laughs> and she was also the only victim who actually died in his office. Shipman considered her such a nuisance that he joked to the detective trying to locate her that he was planning to make part of the patient seating permanently reserved to her and decorated with a plaque in her honor saying seat permanently reserved for Ivy Lomas. So he was like laughing about it. Even worse, Shipman told the officer that it's possible that he left his office as she was dying. So he just left her there to die alone mm -hmm. while she was, uh, while he went to see other patients. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, I mean, I, maybe I'm not delivering this with the right... Um, emphasis but like you don't you're not supposed to do that like if somebody's dying you need to give them your full attention you yeah. need to resuscitate, resuscitate them you need to take care yeah. of them you can't just like but, you oh know, you're dying he's he's killing them right? yeah like, but the fact that like... he's he sort of is joking about it with yeah. an officer is a different matter yeah you know like for him that it's nothing this late this person died in his office yeah, and I just left. 
you know like that's yeah. that's the like the, cal- the sort of a callous attitude to life exactly like exactly. patient respect patient respect yeah a yeah. lot so so that's a big thing about it that he just didn't care like, yeah. didn't respect his patients yeah i feel like a lot of sort of serial killers don't respect their victims but no because like, a lot yeah. of serial killers are psychopaths yeah. who don't care for yeah. other people yeah or don't even see like other people as like really like deserving of respect yeah or like yeah, yeah. I don't think he's ever been diagnosed with anything, so I don't want to like diagnose him. Yeah. You know, whatever. But he, in ba- any case, I he diagnosed him with the bad man. So Shipman's defense uh, in, in court tried to portray the doctor as a well-respected, hard-working member of the community that always went the extra mile for his patients. She also tried to question the forensic analyst of the validity of the tissue testing and suggested that maybe the morphine found in the tissues was cumulative doses from years of use. Uh, because like I said, morphine stays in the tissue for hundreds of years. So if somebody takes like small amounts of morphine, like the yeah. entire, their entire life, then yeah. it's hard to distinguish. Um, but this failed miserably because an American doctor who developed a new groundbreaking method for forensic testing took the stand and said that the method analyzed, that he used this method to analyze hair samples for ongoing drug use and uh, he concluded that the victims died from one massive dose of morphine. Yeah. So that uh, line of defense failed. Yeah. Another point of defense they tried to play off was that Shipman never carried morphine and therefore could never have killed the patients. But some of the patients' families recalled Shipman telling them directly that he had given the patients morphine. Yeah. I mean, he straight up told them that. Yeah. I, <laughs> so have, I have given your mother morphine. I gave morphine. your mom a shot of morphine. Yeah. Um, so that, that you know, indicated, through, yeah. yeah, it fell through, it indicated that he definitely carried it. Yeah. The staff at the medical center Shipman worked at also told the court about all the suspicious drug entries um, and the missing morphine. And what actually happened was that Shipman would overprescribe morphine and diamorphine, which is the medical term for heroin, and then go to the homes of the patients and offer to dispose of any excess that they didn't use, um, and then keep it and use it to kill patients. Yeah. On January 31st, 2000, after two weeks of deliberating, the foreman declared that all the jury's verdicts were unanimous, finding him guilty of 15 counts of murder and one of forgery. Shipman and his wife stood motionless and emotionless as the verdicts were read. The judge passed 15 life sentences for the murders and the four-year sentence for forgery. But the story doesn't end here. Later... Later, inquiries uncovered more murders, with the total number being unclear, but being somewhere between 215 and 260. What? Mm-hmm. Holy shit. That, mm. Good God. Mm-hmm. That's one, that, that's prolific like one murderer. Of the, that's one of the most prolific murderers ever, then. Um, at least in Britain. Yeah. I don't know about in the world, but at least in Britain, he's one of the, the most prolific serial killers. I would still say probably in the world, because like, even like big serial killers... Like, yeah. like some of the most famous serial killers, like they have like maybe Three, a dozen or two, yeah. two dozen. Damn, I'm yeah. like really surprised by that number. That's huge. Wait till you hear this. It was also found that Shipman liked to test the boundaries of his patients by experimenting on them with drugs and trying out different types of treatments. Oh, so he, you know, he just tried different things just to see what would happen. Uh, you, you know, use them yeah. as like lab animals. That's Jesus. Yeah. He made unusual entries in their medical documents, like brief comments about their deaths and also elaborate comments and items crossed out, uh, such as, like, you know, how they were responding and 
how the treatments were, were going. Uh, and he tended to do this in the evenings when fewer medical personnel was around and he was left alone with yeah. patients. Six doctors who signed cremation forms for the victims were also investigated for failing to notice the pattern between his home visits and their deaths. But they were found not guilty. Yeah. A similar hearing was held against two doctors at the same hospital for failing to notice his excessive prescriptions of morphine, but they were also found not guilty. Mm. There was an attempt to return the jewelry that was found at Shipman's house that was valued at £10,000 uh, to the victims, but most victims' families could not prove ownership except for one family. Um, mm. And Shipman's wife, Primrose, got to keep 66 pieces. And another 33 were auctioned off, with the profits going to a victim support organization, which is at least That's good. something, yeah. But the fact that the wife got to keep 66 pieces of this, like, stolen jewelry, yeah. jewelry stolen from, from like, from victims. From, like, from like, dead people. Dead people. Yeah. It's fucked up. That is, that, I mean, that is, that's, like, Nazi shit. Yeah. On January 13th, 2004, Shipman was found hanging in his prison cell in Wakefield Prison, even though he hadn't actually shown signs of suicidal ide ideation, so mm. he wasn't on suicide watch or anything. Yeah. It's not exactly clear why he committed these murders, although there was plenty of speculation. Dr. Richard Backock, psychiatrist at Ramtham Special Hospital, spoke to Shipman at great length and, um, you know, drew his conclusions about about this uh, this person. Yeah. He said to the Telegraph that, um, and I quote, he believed that Shipman's choice of career might have been influenced by his developing tendencies to, towards necrophilia, <laughs> perhaps originally triggered by the death of his mother from cancer when he was 17. He also said that his career as a doctor gave him a sense of power and omnipotent invulnerability. And that might be one of the reasons for his arrogance and negligence in the way that he committed his crimes. Mm. There is little evidence that he killed for sexual, um, sexual reasons. Yeah. You know, so like that has been suggested as a potential motive, but yeah. it's it's it doesn't seem too too likely. Yeah. But um, you know, some speculate that he enjoyed watching the process of dying, and he enjoyed the feeling of control over life and death. Yeah. Which I, you know, if I'm allowed to have an opinion about it, like that's, that sounds right to me. Yeah, like that, that like a bit of God. A bit of God a complex, bit. like yeah. wanting to control. Mm. Yeah, and maybe I mean the yeah, some some probably like some mother like mommy issues. Oh, for sure, it definitely sounds like some mommy issues are going on here. But mostly superiority complex. Mm. To wrap up the section, I'll say that unfortunately he is not an isolated case. There have been a few cases of medical professionals who kill, and there's even a term for it. It's medical serial killers, and there's even a Wikipedia page dedicated to it. Mm -hmm. They're not always doctors, sometimes they're nurses, therapists, hospital workers, and proprietors of care facilities for the sick and elderly. And they kill for a variety of reasons, like for the feeling of power, for money, for attention, because of political beliefs. The list goes on. Yeah, I noticed that you were... You seemed to be confused about the care facility thing. It's just—it's mostly because you know the sick, the elderly—they're oh, very vulnerable yeah. people. They're it, very you know off. Like if they don't have yeah. family, they don't have a lot of people around them. Mm -hmm. um, they're easy targets. They're very easy targets. Um, mm -hmm. I was more confused about the propri proprietors because mm -hmm. isn't that just like landlords? Okay. Uh, like owners, yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> like. They don't do any medical... It depends on the size. They, I guess they do. It really depends on the size, because there's also, like, private little care facilities. I actually know about one specific case. But I just mean, like, like even then, like, proprietors... 
like at, like generally, right? They're not medical professionals, or are but they? It's, they're, not, it's a small it, operation. It, it, care facilities don't have to be medical facilities. Like some some of these places are just places where older people live and yeah. get like meals and get like day to day care. Yeah. So, hmm. um, and also like maybe you'll have like nurses come in like once a day, check in on everyone, yeah. leave. Anyway. So it's not an isolated case. Uh, the medical profession um, is one of the professions that attracts people with certain like traits, traits, certain personality traits, certain personality disorders. Mm-hmm. So it's not a very uncommon mm-hmm. phenomenon. Uh, lastly, the murders led to the implementation of a bunch of reforms in coronial service, coroner's service, um, and death certification procedures, as well as a large uh, swath of actions and recommendations concerning medical practitioners, like the monitoring of mortality of patients of GPs. So, if a doctor, so, like for some reason, their patients die, like, yeah. like you know, way more often, way than, other more often than other doctors, they'll look into that. Mm-hmm. Um, a revision of the certification system, the inspection of GPs, control controlled drugs registers and registry, and and others. Mm. Um, so, the British government was like. We, we need g- we to. Gotta we gotta catch these holes. We gotta like fix this up. Like this is not. This is not acceptable. Yeah. So that was. That was. Uh, that was my section. Doctor death. Doctor death. So you can't trust your doctor. I mean, you can probably, but like. You know, it's it's kind of a balance, right? Because you can't. I mean, you can't, You shouldn't trust anybody blind, blindly. Yeah. But I also don't want to say like you can't trust your do- doctor because that's how you end up with like people not following medical and public health recommendations and yeah. thinking that they know better. Than like yeah. specialists. You should have a healthy skepticism. You should have a healthy skepticism. Yeah. Um, if your doctor, uh, if someone calls you up and tells you that your mom who died uh, left your left doctor a bunch of money. Yeah, exactly. Maybe be maybe, a little. Like, I don't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> I maybe think you're wrong. Look into that a little bit. Yeah. But I, I mean, I guess in the end, it's less on the individual and more on the system yeah. to investigate and have like healthy systems in place to avoid this kind of thing, like this kind of abuse of power. So now we're on my segment. So now you can get to hear my scraggy voice for roughly 40 minutes, 35 minutes or something like that. Um, It's Halloween, of course, and it's Halloween by the time this episode comes out. Uh, This is the Halloween special episode. Uh, So I want to talk a little bit about anxieties around Halloween. Um, because every single year, there's concern about strangers poisoning the candy that people hands out. You may have heard the news stories. Mm-hmm. Um, anxieties about people putting razor blades in apples uh, or handing out weed gummies to children. I love the weed gummies thing. Like, no come one's, on. No one's going to give away weed gummies. They're expensive. Girl, they're, if they have drugs, they're keeping the drugs for themselves. Yeah. Like, no one's going to give away free drugs. Honestly. And also with the razor blade thing, I don't really buy it either because you would see that the apple is cut up. Yeah, especially like if it, if you anyone who's ever like put a knife into an apple knows that like after thirty five seconds the apple sort of like separates and becomes it's, yellow. Exactly, like you can see that. Shit. You can see that it's cut. Um, that this stuff by the way of like people poisoning their candy and like handing it razor blades, it doesn't happen. It mm-hmm. do, it just straight up does not happen. Mm-hmm. It's called Halloween sadism. And I'm going to talk a little bit about it later. But it does it just does not happen. There's been one case where it's confirmed to happen, and it's a father poisoning his son uh, as a sort of directed targeting and not 
not as a sort of like people in the handing out of candy. But what has happened, and what sometimes continues to happen, is something far more horrifying than any Halloween horror movie, medical tampering. My story today is a story of tamper-proof packaging, uh, and why we have them on a lot of medic medicine containers. Um, I realize tamper-proof packaging maybe isn't the most scary title for my thing here, uh, but the most scary title might be the story of the Tylenol terrorist and how it almost cancelled Halloween in 1982. I first of all, I love the Tylenol terrorist. That's mm -hmm. a that's a really good name for. Yeah, you can thank the Chicago Tribune for that one. The the alliteration <laughs> is amazing. I love it. Mm -hmm. uh, second of all, I I think food that has been tampered with is pretty scary. I'm a little bit of a germaphobe at the thought of somebody like sticking their dirty little fingers in my hummus, <laughs> in my <laughs> packaged hummus from the store. Uh -huh. I hate that. Um, well, I'm going to talk about a gruesome mass murder uh, now. And I was actually a bit on the fence of having uh, like a crime like this as a story mm -hmm. here. Um, but it's not technically terrorism, even though they call him the Tylenol terrorism. It's mm -hmm. not technically terrorism. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, just, it's just mass murder. Uh, it's, it's just it's, mass it's murder. Just mass murder. Mm -hmm. um, but and but then I also read about how it impacted Halloween back in the day and how it kind of still continues to impact Halloween and how we think about Halloween. Um, so I thought it would be very relevant, very relevant, appropriate, topical. thematically topical, as you say. Our story begins on September twenty ninth in nineteen eighty two in Chicago, Illinois, with a twelve year old girl called Mary Kellerman. She woke up sick uh, that morning, and her parents told her to stay home, take some Tylenol, have a sick day. She walked into the bathroom, and her parents just heard a drop or a thud and found her unconscious on the floor with an open bottle of Tylenol on the sink. They called paramedics, who could do nothing on the scene, and she was pronounced dead at the hospital. At this point, there was no cause for societal concern. Like, one person dying is a tragedy, mm -hmm. but you, you're not going to like call up the city guard for it. Mm -hmm. um, but the body was going to be examined uh, by like medical professionals because mm -hmm. she was so young and because the, the way she died was very mysterious. Mm -hmm. So, like some doctors are like, this, some, something ain't right here. We're gonna, mm -hmm. We gotta have to check this out. That's so tragic though. It's like, very tragic. Mm -hmm. Kids dying is so... Yeah. Is like horrifying. Yeah. Especially so suddenly, you know? There's a lot of tragedy in this story, actually. Mm -hmm. Like, e even though this, this mass murder event wasn't gigantic, there's mm -hmm. a lot of tragedy here, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Uh, a few hours later, a man called Adam Janus was at home sick and took two Tylenol after having done some quick errands in town. Why do you go into town when you do errands, but when you're sick? Like, if you're going to have a sick day, stay home. But after he took the Tylenol, he promptly fell to the ground, with paramedics ruling it as a massive heart attack. And this is where like regarding his case and later his family that's where authorities begin to suspect something is very wrong and it's also where the evil of this crime shows itself because adam's brother and sister-in-law came over to console adam's wife to grieve and help out as you do like you know um eventually they took some time all themselves they got sick and eventually died at the hospital that evening and the morning after respectively for hours during this day, on September 29th, no one knew what was happening, but they, they realized that like so something was up. Like, mysterious deaths are happening that no one can find a cause for. So the city put the paramedics that had been on the scene in quarantine because they initially suspected a potential viral outbreak. Um, but two firemen, who were just casually doing some medical detective work on the free time, <laughs> as you do, um, actually connected the dots between the various cases. 
at this part, there are six cases. There are a couple of cases that I haven't mentioned here because this is sort of the timeline of events from the point of view of the authorities. But there are more cases that are like going on and they're talking about on police mm-hmm. radar and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant uh, Capitelli, um, that's kind of how you pronounce the name. I tried looking it up. Italian-American, A.M. Walkini. Uh, he was sitting at home and listening to the police radio and hearing about the two latest cases when his mother-in-law came home and he heard the story from her about how her co-worker's 12-year-old daughter had died in a very similar manner as the one on the radio. He called up his friend, Mr. Keyworth, who had been taking notes on the cases himself, and they compared notes and they saw that the word Tylenol was one of the few common factors, but that was the one that made the most like sense like that was the the most common factor it is the most like immediate factor Mm -hmm. because some in some of these cases they just took tylenol and dropped like almost immediately Mm -hmm. and they called their local police stations and eventually the word got out uh it's not fully confirmed yet that like tylenol is the culprit but it's they put out like a public warning like uh, yeah actually the following day on september 30th police cars would patrol the streets blaring out messages about deaths and a possible connection to tylenol and telling people to not take Tylenol just in case. Doctors at the hospitals are also getting their initial test results back at this point, and they're seeing massive amounts of cyanide, sometimes over a thousand times over what would actually be needed to kill a person. And they call up Johnson & Johnson, which is the pharmaceutical company which is behind Tylenol, and they recall all Tylenol from a batch in that area that same day. October 1st, two days after the, the first case, the story breaks and becomes national news, while at the same time, two bodies are found in their apartments. And in the following days, the city mandates that all drugs sold in stores must have tamper-proof packaging, and Johnson & Johnson eventually recall all Tylenol products nationwide. All in all, seven people died in this event. Um, it's very tragic. No one knows exactly how it happened, or why it happened, or even who did it. Um, there was one man who sent a letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding that they pay a million dollars or the killings would continue, which I traced to a man called James Lewis. But from the investigation, it seems as if this guy was just out to like make a quick buck of a tragedy and didn't actually do the act himself. I can't imagine being a person like that who hears that something like that is happening on the news <laughs> and like devises a plan to blackmail a yeah. company into... like giving them money or i guess not blackmail that's not the right word extortion but, but extortion but it's not even an extortion because he didn't do it he just like lies it doesn't it doesn't matter you, you don't extortion you, it doesn't have to be actionable mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. if it's if it's a threat to do it then but what kind like what kind of person do you have to be to pretty, do that pretty bad guy <laughs> um yeah pretty bad guy because they, they also like interviewed him eventually and like he 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 does. He doesn't. He wouldn't know how to do how to do it, and he doesn't know certain details about the mm-hmm. about the, the 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 murders. Because the way this happened too is, um, they would during their investigation they found Tylenol bottles where some of the capsules, not all of them, um, had been had had their contents replaced with just pure cyanide. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, so Tylenol, it wasn't like a pressed capsule. It came in yes. in a little. Um, in a, like a gel capsule or what, what do you call it? Exactly. So mm-hmm. like initially, like Tylenol in this case comes in in capsule form. Yeah, um, it's not like pressed powder. It's not a pressed powder. It's not a pressed pill. Yeah. Um, and that some some pills uh, or some capsules in some bottles mm-hmm. had been replaced. So like um, Russian roulette. 
yeah. with cyanide. Yeah, and that yeah. a lot, and that like a lot of people had just gotten unlucky. Yeah, and then even more people had gotten lucky. Mm. Uh, this is also one of the big reasons why, um, you know, the police cars drove around and being like, don't, don't take Tylenol. Even if you've taken Tylenol today ready, mm. don't take another one. <laughs> um, you know, be be safe. During the investigation, they also found more bottles in stores and in boxes and in people's homes that had been laced with cyanide. Um, but most of these bottles came from stores where victims also had bought their bottles. And this this shows some evidence that the the person who did it probably went to stores and like replaced capsules in in the store so itself. So he bought the Tylenol, took it home, replaced the capsules, and then took it back to the store and might, left it. Might not even have taken it back home. Might just have like opened it up, put in close again. Didn't they have cameras in stores back then? Uh, they they might have in some stores, but they didn't find anything like that. I don't think it was as universal back then. The thing is, we don't actually, we don't know. Mm. Like, no one knows. There are many theories as to how it happened. Mm. Uh, but we, no one really knows how. We, we, they just think it happened in the stores, and not at a distribution center, and not in a lab. Yeah. Because if that had happened, it would be more evenly distributed, mm -hmm. or it would be even more concentrated. Because if he had manipulated, like, in, in the distribution center, odds are it would have been, like, whole bottles, where it's just all cyanide. Or not necessarily. He not could necessarily. go. He could go into a warehouse and do that, but it would yeah. be harder to get into a warehouse. I feel. Yeah, but the but fact I, that like some stores had nothing at all, exactly. and some stores had quite a lot exactly. of cyanide. That that's, that's the thing that sort of. Like, but what I wonder is, can you buy an item twice? Like if he bought the item, went home, replaced it, and then brought brought it back. Back in the eighties, you probably could. So can you? Because like, like you buy cash. Oh, you do cash, right? Right, like and especially in America, hmm. you buy you you. You buy a lot of things with cash. But today, you know, obviously I, cards are yes, more popular. Yes, but can you like beep it twice? I'm not even sure that they beep it in that way in the eighties. No, I'm not even sure that that's like the main uh, thing. we sound so young right now. <laughs> Did oh, they beep they, it back if, in if the If you were alive in the eighties, which odds are some people are, <laughs> a lot of people, mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't that long ago. Um, let us know how did you buy Tylenol in stores. Did you beep things at the register, mm. or did they just give you over the counter like a bottle, and then you take it home? Yeah, but I, I it, like no matter like how how they did it, like they still suspected that like the the main the main yeah. theory of suspicion is that like a person went into the store yeah. and replaced it in store and didn't, yeah. and didn't necessarily like. I'm just trying. I'm home. just trying to think about how they did it. <laughs> yeah, I get it. We're gonna crack this case. There's actually a podcast now. I did some research for this. There's a podcast out right now. Uh, of some people trying to crack the case, mm -hmm. like it's a true crime, like they're gonna crack the Tylenol mm -hmm. terrorist case. Sure, Be like go for it. The, FB know, the FBI has had an investigation ongoing for forty years, but you'll crack the case. I mean, there's a meme going around that you know, don't don't go against two bitches with a podcast because <laughs> you will lose. <laughs> they will crack it. They will crack it. I mean, I hope they, I hope they will. In the following years, there were over six hundred copycat incidents with around five people being killed from similar medical tampering, with the vast majority of culprits being caught or doing it incorrectly. Um, there are anti-tamper procedures in place, even before even before this, um, which does filter out a lot of like tampering things. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, there's quality control things, there are sec there's security and distribution centers, stuff like that. Uh, but there were a lot of copycats. Incidents. And that, that's important that, uh, for, the, for the Halloween impact later. Uh, the FBI has had an ongoing investigation into the case, but has as of yet not found anyone responsible. Uh, initially, they did suspect Ted Kaczynski 
the Unabomber uh, because he had spent some time in Chicago during that time and causing like random death was, you know, not too outside of his MO, even though he, you know, did bombs. But he never took responsibility for for them and investigations never found any evidence that he had, mm. had access to cyanide. Mm. And like Ted Kaczynski is very political in the things that he targets a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, so there are some people who think that maybe he targeted the pharmaceutical industry because mm. he was he very much like anti anti modern modern technology anti mm-hmm. like modern capitalism. Um, Interesting. So maybe it was something like that, but they don't think Ted Kaczynski had anything to do with it. Some theories are that one of the victims was actually killed by a family member with cyanide, uh, not via Tylenol, and that the tampering was caused to divert attention from any one victim. Or that someone at a distribution office did the tampering, but as I mentioned, like that doesn't, doesn't track with how mm. it went. But this led to a couple of reforms. This became national news, obviously, and it led to a couple of reforms of how we contain medicine generally, or how we package medicine, rather. The company behind Tylenol eventually recalled all batches of Tylenol and implemented new tamper-proof caps so that you could tell if the cap had been opened or not. But also, federal action was taken as well. Um, Product tampering was made into a federal crime in the Anti-Tampering Act that same year, and companies were subsidized to move away from capsules Mm. towards solid tablets. There's also a big reason why today a lot of a lot of medicines come in solid tablet form. Mm-hmm. That the tampering like this couldn't have happened yep. in a in a solid brick form. I mean, I guess you could lace it. You could, but it's it's harder. It's harder. Yeah. Um, um, but the really scary thing about this, though, um, ooh, Halloween scary, <laughs> uh, is that according to security analysts, these tamper-proof caps and new security measures only offer a very small hindrance for someone who really wanted to repeat the attack. In a few cases, security analysts, mostly locksmiths, because the locksmith community is obsessed with finding security flaws in systems and putting them to the test, have been able to easily replace bottles in store and pharmacies, putting little GPS trackers inside of them, and then finding the people who buy the thing and like giving them a replacement product. Um, like they they've gone to stores and like opened up a can of Tylenol, mm-hmm. put in a GPS tracker, put it back, waited for the cap for the thing to be sold. And then they found the person being like, because they, they see it, they can see on GPS being like, oh, it's, so then it's, what, it's being moved. So what would they then like go find the person and be like, ha? No, but they I would trick you. No, no, they would be like, uh, like you have been part of like an experiment that we've done to test the pharmaceutical company or the or the or the, or the apothecary, or the pharmacy that you that we that you went to. Mm-hmm. Um, they have failed. <laughs> they have failed you. Here's here's a real bottle of Tylenol, mm-hmm. or like you know, here's a voucher, or like I would the money be so I would like be that. so freaked out if somebody if somebody did that to me. Like to me, that seems like a really weird power play. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, I the fuck I I see that it comes from like a I see that it comes from a good place. Yeah. But to me, that's I would be really freaked out. <laughs> yeah. You gave me a, like a tampered product, and now you're telling me that. That I should accept another one from you? From, like I think maybe they like did a voucher or like just money or something. Like they they, yeah. they did it in a they, I know that they did it in a in a more fair way okay. than that. And then after they do this, they contact, you know, every step in the process mm-hmm. here being like, hey, we like you your, your tamper proof yeah. thing isn't yeah. doing that well. Yeah. We we got past your security system. Yeah. So like if they have cameras, because sometimes they do even today. Like today they have cameras. They don't check the cameras until some uh, unless until something, something happens, happens, in which mm-hmm. case it's too late. So it's like, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't prevent mm-hmm. uh, this type of tampering. 
this is this is actually why um, security testers want people to refer to them like tamper proof as tamper resistant mm-hmm. instead to sort of give a more accurate view of what they actually do. Yeah, they make yeah. it harder, but they don't. They're like, not, they're it's not a hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. Anyone who does enough research on how to defeat a tamper-proof cap uh, can do so. Like mm. if they if they want to, like, like if they you get really the experience, want to. they get yeah. the tools. You can. Um, I love I love defeat the the yeah. tamper-proof bottle. Like it's a like it's a final boss battle. <laughs> they 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 use that word a lot actually in the sort of uh, security analysis community. I, I I actually watch occasionally YouTube videos of locksmiths like mm-hmm. beating new locks that like lock companies come up with. Like sometimes you'll see like um, the the Titan XL super powered <laughs> like lock and it's like this huge thing mm-hmm. and it has like four codes and a key and like another thing. Like a sixty year old comes in with a yeah, lock pick and, and like sixty five year old and just like and it's open. Because <laughs> because a, a lot of oh, this actually brings us to talking about security theater because like mm-hmm. a big lock like that is supposed to look safe, mm-hmm. but they're not actually that safe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the same thing is actually true for the the caps mm-hmm. and the sort of like foil thing you have on top. Like it, it does provide some form of safety. But you can like just glue it back on yeah, if you really want exactly. to. Um, so the, the real reason why we have a lot of these uh, these things is, I mean, obviously it is slightly safer, um, but the biggest impact is that we feel safer. And also we dismiss future cases of tampering as like rare freak occurrences um, instead of something that like was bound to happen eventually. Mm-hmm. So like when this happened, for example, a lot of people were like, oh, well, we should have had better better caps on the thing. Um, if something happens now and you have all of these like measures in place, for example, people are more willing to be like, well, what could the company have done? Mm-hmm. Like what could, what could anyone have done to prevent mm-hmm. this? Okay. Um, because they have to do they have to do more to get to that point. Even though it can be pretty easy to get to that point, uh, they have to do those steps and that makes people more willing to forgive them. Mm-hmm. Um, How about the the caps that like, where if you open them, like a a part of the plastic like pops out? Mm-hmm. You can you can melt it. You, you close it again, make it a line, and then you melt around the, um, around the edge with a directed... But like, when you open it thing. again, does it pop again? Yep. <laughs> if, you, if you do it right... I've seen people do that. Oh my god! So it's like, it's, can, if if someone trust every single part of this thing, if someone wants to make it to reset it to make it seem like it's fine, they can they can go around it. It's more hassle, but you can do it. If you really want to, I I remember opening that thing for the first time and being so like overcome with a feeling of <laughs> safety and security Just and like, trust. Yeah, trust in the. You know, in society, mm-hmm. you ruined that for me now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Some of them are actually better than others. Yeah. Um, the ones you have on like plastic bottles, where the, the where the plastic is sort of like, it's almost one piece, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a bit on the back that sort of spring out. Yeah. Um, those are those are much safer because that's harder to reset. Mm-hmm. But the the other problem with that is that you can, you can still reset it to the point where like most the vast majority of people. Uh, wouldn't notice that it's been tampered with like you could look at it and be like hey look at look at those little plastic things that should be they should be like this but they're actually like this what about no one notices that what about the bottles that um they have like a sleeve like the the um the label is like a sleeve that goes over the whole bottle so Mm -hmm. if you open the cap then you rip the sleeve that's probably one of the better ones yeah because then you would need to like fabric the whole sleeve again like the whole label again yeah plastic like like wrap it around yeah that's probably one of some of the more safer ones but you can still print the new sleeve 
Yeah, but it's like made of plastic and it's molded around the thing. Yeah, but people have plastic printers and stuff. There's plastic printers? Yeah. <laughs> like, like the, the problem here, the, like, the, here's the problem that security analysts are also saying that, like, like, but it's the same thing with, like, airport security. Like, if someone really wants a bomb through, through airport security, they can do that. Remind, it, 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 like, if you really want something done, or, it, like, any, I feel, I feel like it's like this. Any security measure you implement, some, someone will figure out a way to, to go about out, it. A, a, to Reminds me of the... And odds are it's going to be a locksmith from, like, <laughs> Illinois. Reminds me of all the security measures that they have against chess players. Someone <laughs> maybe figured out a way. Hey, no, beats. For if you haven't kept up with like chess drama, that that's gonna sound completely deranged to you. Mm-hmm. Just look up chess player anal beat. You'll you'll <laughs> know what we're talking. It's about. actually not porn, but we're talking about security theater and why it's like why it's still kind of fine to have because consumers are more confident and it's also good for the company because the company gets to gets to say like, hey, we're safe, we're good, trust us. And uh, Johnson and Johnson actually maybe benefited in some ways from the crisis uh, because they saw a massive rise in public confidence after their huge recall of Tylenol and their own personal choice to develop more tamper-resistant bottles and capsules because many people saw that they had acted quickly and reasonably and they gained a, like a huge amount of consumer confidence, which is really important when you're selling medicine. So even though the recall, because the recall cost them, I think, like $100 million worth of product mm-hmm. um, in, in, you know, in 1982 money, so that's a, a more now, a lot of people still think that it was sort of like good for them in the long run to sort of like take responsibility, fix the problems very quickly, and you know, do, what, do what they could. Take note, uh, many other pharmaceutical <laughs> companies and also Johnson & Johnson, I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> again. Uh, the main reform here that actually probably works best is the selling of solid tablets instead of capsules um, because it's harder to imitate a solid capsule like perfectly to the point where it's like it has the same color the same shape the same consistency and also the same taste because if something tastes differently then you're going to spit it out but security analysts have shown that that is also possible to get around with if you have the right equipment um, but that is probably the one that is like hardest to beat. It's really hard to make something that like looks, smells, tastes, feels like Tylenol, uh, but is actually something else. That's mm. really difficult to do. Mm. Um, but this is also a story about Halloween. Uh, so let's 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 return to how it affected that Halloween because this happened in September and early October, um, right at the start of the Halloween season. Uh, people have always been concerned about like Halloween candy being poisoned. Uh, and it's a fear that like stretches back to like the 1950s, like when Halloween becomes, when trick-or-treating becomes a more of a social activity that people do. People have always been concerned about uh, Halloween sadism, as it's called. But in October 1982, and the news broke about the Tylenol murders right at the start of October, all that panic and fear around Tylenol quickly got transferred over to Halloween candy. And people got worried that like maybe copycats would use trick-or-treating as an opportunity to cause more math, mass death. Yeah, which, fair. Honestly, fair. Fair. Like if, I would, too. Especially since, like, a lot of copycat mm. cats did emulate this mm. with, like, other medicines and foods and stuff like that. And I also feel like candy is not very difficult to tamper with. Yeah. Especially because 
you know, some people just give out loose candy. Yeah. Or in a they used to. I don't, I don't think people really do that anymore. No, but... I've, I've seen people on Halloween who have like a bowl of candy outside their, outside yeah, their yeah, door. Yeah, but like, which is insane, it, but it's by not, the way. But it's not, it doesn't come, I mean, it comes like individually packaged, right? Yeah, that's true. Not yeah. just a, like a loose bowl. Yeah, but I, I know that in the past, you know, people used to just stick their hand in a, yeah. in a bowl of like loose M&Ms and just give mm-hmm. you a few in your, in your, Pillowcase. Yeah, that's true. And now it's a lot more individually It's a lot more, packaged. yeah, it's a lot more like, safe. In 1982, at least, a lot of people back then were like, fuck trick-or-treating. Mm-hmm. We're not doing trick-or-treating mm-hmm. this year. A lot of cities actually canceled Halloween just outright, and they imposed curfews, especially in the Chicago area, where a lot of like suburbs and stuff like that were like, if you're out after six, if you're a kid out after six in a Halloween costume, you know, we're going to send you home. The mayor of Chicago actually handed out a million leaflets that asked people to hand out small toys or money instead of candy. Uh, and a community called Poplar Hills handed out coupons for candy stores um, that they could like redeem uh, in a candy store itself. I don't really get the idea behind the coupons, though, because like if you have a coupon that you're going to redeem for candy in a candy store, a Tylenol was poisoned in the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't the candy be poisoned in I the mean, candy store? I mean, it would be a bit more difficult to poison candy in a store than poison the candy that's in your house. But the thing so is, I get yeah. the idea behind it, but yeah, I think money yeah. and small toys is probably like a safer that's way to go about it. That's probably better mm-hmm. um, But also, like, none of these were like ordinances or laws that they could enforce. They more were just like, like suggestions, like please, please do that. Yeah. And but a lot of people still did trick or treating the normal way where they're just gave about candy. And I feel like if a person wanted to 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 kill a bunch of kids, they would, they would just follow they, the recommendations. Yeah, they're not going to be like, "Oh, now I have to hand I out have my, to be the an upstanding, upstanding citizen. I have to I have to poison these coupons." Yeah. You know, so that doesn't like I think that I think maybe just handing out money would be better. Mm-hmm. Kids are also going to go nuts for that. Kids love money. You give them yeah. $2 and they're like, "Oh, my god, I love this." Best day of my life. Best day of my life. I'm going to buy a candy bar. This is my view of children today, by the way. This is what I think children do for $2. Uh, that Halloween in 1982, sales of candy uh, in the U.S. dropped by almost 20%. Um, but the biggest economic impact was to the pharmaceutical companies uh, that you know recalled over $100 million worth of product. And that is the story of the Tylenol terrorist. Uh, hope you feel comfortable eating your painkillers now. I don't. <laughs> so that is our Halloween episode. Hope. Spooky music, Spooky music around, hopefully. Um, Sorry again for my gravelly voice. I don't think you sound very different before you normally sound. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most roasted I think I've ever been. I, I mean, I, okay, like I can, I can, you can hear, hear okay. a little bit of like, you know, gravel in your mm. throat. But it's not super bad. Well, that's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad at least that it's that it's somewhat normal. I feel, I I felt pretty good when we started this episode. Yeah. I feel like a puddle of mud. <laughs> you need to drink some tea. I need to drink some tea and go to bed. Well, anyway, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. Remember to rate us if you if you did. <laughs> you got like a marketer smile on, like immediately, like a realtor, just like. I love it. I love to see it. You know, we've been getting good ratings and it makes me really yeah. happy because I feel like people enjoyed this podcast mm-hmm. and it just makes me like want to do it more. Yeah. And it's, I'm so happy that people like it and mm-hmm. they, they rate us and leave comments. But we were talking about this today that like, uh, we, we've gotten a fair number of like ratings on, on various platforms, like including mm-hmm. Spotify and iTunes. And it, I, th- I think we're getting recommended. Yeah. I it, think Spotify more than other platforms. Probably. But, um, 
you know, I, it, I I'm not trying to like make it into like some sort of weird brag. It just makes me happy that people enjoy our work. Yeah. Um, I, I, I specifically just want to ask, like, if you found this podcast via it being recommended on like Spotify or iTunes or Google Podcasts or whatever, um, leave us a comment on Twitter or <laughs> twitter.com slash leechfestpod. Because um, I'm just curious to see if that happens. Yeah, like tell us where you come from. Yeah. Uh, where where did you hear about us? Because most people, I think, when we started this podcast, a lot of the like the viewers or the um, you know listeners came from you, mm-hmm. from from your audience, like my channel, yeah. your channel. So if we're getting, if now we're getting people who uh, don't come from from that category, then we would love to know how you heard about us. Yeah. Um, anyway, we hope you enjoyed this episode and we hope that you have an amazing Halloween. If, if you trick or treat, if your kids trick or treat, be careful where they get their candy, but stay safe and enjoy Halloween. Mm-hmm. And Reject will... all apples that people give you. <laughs> and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>